0: And we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So if you want to turn there with me, we're going to read that. Are you ready? I'm going to read to you the word of the Lord. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you, but do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Abraham the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers? Sorry, Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith, without works, is dead also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would lead us by your spirit through this text, that you would uncover the treasure that is here, That as we look into your word, as we open it up, your Holy Spirit would open us up and look into us and transform us and change us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. That our lives would reflect his faithful life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. James begins... His letter mentioning the testing of our faith in James 1.3. He talks about faith with no doubting in James 1.6. He commands us not to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality in James 2.1. And he mentions that the poor of this world have been chosen by God to be rich in faith in chapter 2 verse 5. And if we skip past our text at the end of James's letter in James 5:15, he mentions the e- efficacy of the prayer of faith. Here in our text in, in chapter 2, James is talking about salvation. He is talking about faith that saves. He is talking about justification. Hebrews 10 and 11, which we don't have time to get into here today, Hebrews 10 and 11 are relevant to this uh, topic, this discussion of justifying faith. They are relevant to understanding justifying faith. Or we could say it this way, um, relevant to understanding the faith that the just shall live by. That's what Hebrews 10 says quotes Habakkuk. So the author of Hebrews, just like the author of James, is talking about justification by faith. In Hebrews, we are given a technical description of faith. And it, and it goes like this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. One of the things that that means is that faith is evidence faith is substance faith is visible it's not invisible it's the evidence of that which is not seen it is able to be weighed and judged you can paint portraits of faith and that's what the author of Hebrews then goes on to do in chapter 11 what we sometimes call the Hall of Faith chapter. He paints portraits of faith. And he gives us a portrait after portrait of what faith looks like and feels like and sounds like, what faith does. James is not out on skinny branches teaching something novel or contrary to the gospel that you know, that you have heard. He is not teaching something contrary to the rest of the testimony of Scripture. James is describing the same faith that we find throughout the Scriptures, and that is a faith which produces obedience. Obedience. That is the faith that is described throughout the scriptures is a faith which produces obedience. And so we're going to go verse by verse here and think through these verses. So verse 14, what does it profit my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? James is talking about justification. He's talking about justifying faith. He's, he says living faith is visible and what we see when we look at living faith is obedient works and let me remind you of two particular portions of our statement of faith at Christ fellowship number 1 if you go and you look at our statement of faith you'll see both of these portions i want to bring these up early on so you know that we like James we agree with James We don't believe that James doesn't belong in the canon of the scriptures. Like some of the early reformers erroneously thought for a time. I think at one point Martin Luther said James is a book of wood, hay, and stubble or something like that. He changed his mind. He certainly has changed his mind now. But um, we like James. James is not teaching something contrary to the rest of the testimony of scripture. So one of, the, one of the things from our statement of faith says we believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone and that faith without works is dead. Another, another, in another spot in our statement of faith, we say that saving faith is evidenced by kingdom service or works in the fruit of the spirit. What is the substance or evidence we see when we look at living, justifying faith? James uses the word works but it may help us to grasp the compatibility between the statements that Paul makes, which we'll talk about, and the statements that James makes. It may help us to grasp their compatibility by understanding James to be saying, to be talking about obedience, intentional obedience, and not just the um, spending of energy works. Work Not just the spending of energy, not just doing something, but intentional obedience. When James says works, he's talking about the obedience that is born out of the living faith of Christ, which we have received. Let me say that again. James is talking about the obedience that is born out of the living faith of Christ the faith of Christ. Remember, that's what he says at the beginning of this chapter. The faith of Christ, which we have received. So it's not a complicated passage of Scripture. In fact, this is a very straightforward passage of Scripture, which is why some people think it's, you know, a little bit tricky. Because it's so straightforward, James is so clear that they think there must be something else, because... This isn't jiving with my theological frameworks. We'll talk about that too in a minute. This is not difficult. It's not a difficult section to interpret or to understand. All we have to do is let it speak authoritatively for itself. Okay? It's not difficult. It's not complicated. It is not a mystery. It's not some kind of like... Insane upside down parable. It is very straightforward, and all we need to do is let it speak for itself authoritatively. What we must not do is try to cram it into a theological system that we've constructed for ourselves. In other words, we must not deny or deform the scriptures in order to make our theological systems coherent or comfortable. That's what we must not do. We must be careful to let the scripture speak for itself and interpret itself and not try and uh, um, cram scripture into our our understanding. We have to grant that our understanding might be wrong and let the scripture speak for itself. My brethren, James... James is talking to his brethren. We we mentioned this last week when we talked about partiality, but just let that sink in for a moment. James is talking to his brethren about their misunderstanding of justification of faith, about their error when it comes to a fundamental Christian doctrine. And in that error, in that misunderstanding, James does not withhold the affirmation of brother to them. In other words, this is like what we said last week. In other words, we don't start with, when somebody's caught up in sin or in error, you don't start with a slanted eye view that says, I don't even know if you're really a Christian or not. You start with, the way the Bible does, the way that the epistles do, you start with brother What do we say? Brother, come to Christ. Come back to Christ. Come back to the faith. And so when you think about this, James is dealing with a first order Christian doctrine, fundamental Christian doctrine, justification by faith. And he says, brethren, even while he strongly exhorts and rebukes and teaches against this first order heresy, he affirms those struggling As brothers, what patience and mercy and grace is that? Isn't that the kind of patience and mercy and grace you want from your heavenly father who sees all of your theological errors in your mind? Isn't that what you want? Yeah, I do too. Can faith without works save a person? James says, no. He's not saying no," meaning yes." He says no," meaning no." <laughs> Does the Holy Spirit through James contradict the Holy Spirit through Paul, who says in Romans 3:28 that therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law? Does the Holy Spirit through James contradict the Holy Spirit through Paul in Galatians 2:16? Um, that says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. And not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Can faith without works save a person? No. Can works without faith save a person? No. No. These verses are only a problem against one another if you fail to let the scripture speak for itself and allow the scripture to interpret the scripture. Let the scripture give us the definitions. We don't need to give the scripture the definitions. The scripture gives us the definitions. When When we start giving the scripture the definitions, telling God what he has to mean here, that's when we run into the problems. So if you squirm or if you flinch when the Holy Spirit says in James 2, 24, listen carefully. If you squirm or you flinch when the Holy Spirit says in James two twenty four, and you know you're flinching when you read that passage out loud to somebody and you say, and you immediately follow it by, well, faith, faith, we are justified by faith alone. You know, where you immediately follow up with the, uh, um, the excuses, the biblical excuses, and, and you help James out by teaching better than James teaches, right? Um. When you, if you squirm or if you flinch when James says what he says in verse 24, when he says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, well, then you better make sure that you are not the one misunderstanding or denying biblical faith or denying or misunderstanding the biblical command to obey. When you flinch, you better make sure you are check yourself. We don't need to check James. Let James check us, and we need to check ourselves. And so, when we flinch, that's not just an intellectual problem. Well, see, we've got we've to also say this because of this, this, this. When we flinch, it's not just an intellectual problem. It's a pride problem. It's a sin problem. And we need, don't need to start by dealing with the sin problem by um, conducting an intellectual exercise. And getting our eyes, theological eyes, dotted and T's crossed. We start with that sin problem by confessing and repenting. And going back to Christ. We don't... The, the problem isn't that we need to iron out our theological positions. The problem is that you need to let the Bible iron you out. You need to let the Holy Spirit grow you up. Your understanding and your knowledge of Christ. And what your life is to look like. Let... The Holy Spirit conform you to Christ as you submit yourself to the Word, not to yourself, not your own thoughts, your own understanding. Remember the scripture, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. We're not doing that when we import our own ideas of the definitions into the text instead of letting it speak for itself. So brothers, your job if you flinch at James's teaching is to trust and obey Christ. Faith without works is dead. So, in fact, it is Paul, and we've talked about this before, so you might, you might remember, and you're going to get to this if you're doing the Bible reading here in just a few days, but it's Paul at the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16 who uses that great phrase, the obedience of faith. It is Paul. At the end of Romans, he uses that wonderful phrase, the obedience of faith. And that is precisely what James is talking about. He is talking about the obedience of faith. So there's no biblical contradiction here. There's no need to reconcile James and Paul because James and Paul are friends. And they didn't have a falling out and you don't need to reconcile friends, right? When James says works, you should understand obedience. These works are derived from faith. They are heartfelt obedience, loving the standard that we have been commanded to keep. Loving the standard that we have been commanded to keep. And how do we know that? How do we know God and how do we know His commands? Well, he has perfectly revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. He has perfectly demonstrated for us faithful life. How? In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ from whom our faith comes. That's where our faith comes from. That's where your faith comes from. It is the faith of Jesus Christ. Faith In Jesus Christ. It is that faith that compels us to leave all and follow him. Faith given to us compels us to love and obey him. Diligently. How? With all of our heart. With all of our soul. With all of our mind. With all of our strength. That's how we love God. And so we are counted righteous in Christ because Christ gives himself to us. Christ gives his faith to us. Christ is to us our righteousness. He is our very life. He is our life. If he is our life, and our faith is dead, what does that tell us? Christ is life, not death. Verses 15 and 16, what is faith? What are works? James gives us two images to help us see the relationship of faith and works. We have words and deeds, and the other image is body and spirit. I want to say, we don't want to take James's metaphor too far... And make it say things that James is not making it say. He's not saying. James tells us exactly what is meant by these uh, images, by these metaphors. So we, don't, we want to be careful not to like do some kind of weird wooden, well, faith represents this wor- the word and the works represent this deed. Or faith represents the body and the works represent the spirit. Or is it faith is the spirit and the works is the We don't need to do all that and worry about all that. It says exactly what it says and James tells us what, it, what, he, mean, what he means to say. And what he means to say is very simple and straightforward. Words and deeds, body and spirit. From verse 15, the question is, what do your words alone profit the destitute? What do our words alone profit the destitute, the the naked and the destitute of food? What do our words depart, be, be clothed and be filled? What do they profit the naked and destitute man? Nothing. They profit him nothing. Faith and works corresponds with saying saying and giving, words and deeds. What do your words profit the naked and destitute apart from you giving food and clothing? Nothing. What should we do when we encounter the poor man, the destitute man, the naked and destitute of food? We should clothe him and we should feed him. But what if you only have a shirt on your back and only more in the closet at home, but nothing else with you in the car? What should we do? Give him Jesus's shirt. That's what you do. You buy him some food. That's also one of the ways to find out really quickly if somebody's destitute of food. offer to buy them food. And when they say, no, I don't want food. I want money. Okay. You're not really destitute of food. Okay. Be warmed and filled, but don't give him food and clothing. Your words are worth nothing to save the poor man. Our words are worth nothing to save the poor man. Verse 17 faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It will not save you. You may be very dutiful, and this is what I'm saying like works, James doesn't just mean spending energy. You may be very busy. You may be very busy. Very dutiful. You may be a very pious Christian. Like the Pharisees. Very pious. But you will perish apart from Christ. You will be cut off from Christ as John describes in, 15, in John 15. As a fruitless, disobedient covenant breaker... If there is only death in your life and not life. If all that's inside is death and not life. You will be cut off. If all you have is faith that is dead. A faith that does not produce an obedience. Or we could say allegiance to God. But instead disobedience. If all it produces is disobedience, it is dead, you are dead, you are dying. Dead faith will not profit you anything. Dead faith will not save you. Dead faith is not the faith of our risen and living King Jesus. Do you hear the contradiction? Dead faith is not the faith of our risen and living King Jesus. If a brother or sister only has dead faith, that brother or sister is perishing. And what should we do when we see a brother or sister perishing with dead faith? Preach Christ to them, call them back to Christ. Brother or sister, don't say you have faith but don't have works. Show me your faith by your works. Come back. Remember that in Galatians, Paul makes it clear that faith is the fruit of the Spirit of God in us. Our Bibles often translate that faithfulness, but understand that that it's the same word. When he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, does love come from you or does it come from God? It comes from God. But sometimes we tend to think that faith is something that comes from us. No, faith is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Faith is the fruit of the Spirit when it's in little bitty seed form and when it's growing, 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 growing up strong and mighty. It is not the fruit of your awesomeness, it is the fruit of the Spirit of God in us. Does faith always have to be seen? By human eyes in order to be living? No. No. Faith does not have to be seen with human eyes. It can be seen by human eyes. But it doesn't have to be seen by human eyes in order to really truly be living faith. For example, we can look at babies who do like four things total, right? Like consume, expel, sleep, scream. That's about it. That means there are very simple ways for babies to demonstrate disobedience or obedience, right? Very simple ways for baby to demonstrate obedience or disobedience. And there's a time gap in there. We know, we we believe babies are born in sin, need Jesus just like everybody else, but babies only do like four things, and so there's a little bit of a, uh, of an ability gap for them to even display obedience or disobedience, right? Pretty soon babies grow up, and they'll start to get their diaper changed, and they'll start to rebel on the uh, diaper changing table, right? The arching of the back, and the screaming, and the throwing of the fit, and they'll start to demonstrate some disobedience, But there's very simple things, small ways that 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 happens in babies. Living faith in seed form, even even if only the size of a mustard seed is still living faith. Easy to miss. Still living faith. Fruit trees grow from seeds and a fruit tree is still a fruit tree when it's a sapling and a little bitty Dixie cup. An apple tree growing from an apple seed and a little bitty Dixie cup sitting on a windowsill is still an apple tree. It is still an apple tree. Before the fruit comes, it's still a fruit tree. Before the fruit comes, it's still a fruit tree. And think about this. In the moments after that fruit has been harvested. And all that is left. All that is left are tired, sagging, bare branches. That is not a picture of fruitless death, is it? No. What is it a picture of? It's a, it's a picture of just the opposite. It is a pretext to a glorious resurrection, a glorious spring that is coming when it all starts again. So we need to be careful. Faith is visible to the human eye, but just because the human eye can't see it doesn't mean it's not real or not there. There's no shame in being spent. There's glory there. In time, faith will be seen or it won't be seen. In time, faith will be seen or it won't be seen. And when it isn't, your job is to gladly accept the discipline toward the obedience of faith. Like a sapling that's growing up, and it's being tied and trained to go in a direction it doesn't want to go? Some, some of you tie your children up and make them go in directions they don't want to go to, right? So just like that. You, it's that discipline that says, no, 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 no. You need to come over here where the sunlight is. Or whether it is the painful pruning of the mature Christian. So that mature Christian can bear more Fruit. Your faith will be seen or it won't. Verse 18, faith biblically defined is not something that is merely internal. It is not relegated to some unseen realm. Biblical faith is substance and evidence it is visible and it's not just visible to god it's visible to anyone not even just christians it's visible to anyone unfortunately this does not always align with how many of us live we consider the fruit of the spirit again someone may claim to have love but in some invisible dimension. I used the example last week of the, oh, I love them, but I don't like them. Okay, well, how, how do we know you love them? Because you're telling me you love them? Somebody can, someone can claim to have love, but in some invisible dimension. And the only thing demonstrating a love for God or love for somebody else is, is, is the empty profession of love. I love them. I love that poor person over there who's destitute of clothing and food. How do, we, how do I know you love them? I told them, go in peace. Be, be filled and clothed. Oh, you love them. <laughs> Ironically, it's, that's, that's enough for many Christians. Now, if you try to claim to have invisible patience or invisible self-control, all of a sudden it's not quite as easy, easy to fool everybody around you, is it? I have invisible patience. That's why I still was allowed to get mad at the guy, you know, driving too slow. Or I have invisible self-control. That's why I was allowed to blow up at my kids, right? I have self-control. It's just invisible, like my love. (laughs) Wait a second. That doesn't work. Luke 14, 27 and verse 33, Jesus says this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In verse 33. So therefore if any any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We do this with the, with verses like this too where we say, well, this is a metaphor obviously. Is a metaphor. We don't literally have to take up a cross. It's a metaphor. And it's true. That is a metaphor, but what, what we do next is we relegate this idea of taking up the cross to the unseen realm, to the non-physical reality of heart devotion. We say, oh, I'm, I'm, taking, I'm devoted in my heart to God. I have faith. It's just in here. can't see it. We say this about our hearts or our beliefs or our faith. And again, it's true enough that our cross-bearing is about our hearts, but it doesn't for one moment exclude your life in the flesh. The life you now live in the flesh. How do we live it? By the faith of the Son of God. That is your works, your obedience. Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. You're gifted in that way, faith, and I'm gifted in this way, works. James says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Why does James challenge the person in this way? James challenges the person who would say that because he knows that it is an impossible task. The person who says, I have faith alone separated from works, he says, show it to me, demonstrate it for me, exercise it apart from your works. And he does this, he does this knowing that's impossible. And so the man, that man will either demonstrate to have dead faith, and what he'll do is he'll do something disobedient, or he will demonstrate saving faith By his obedient works. And he'll demonstrate it through his works, thus refuting his own argument, right? Self-refuting argument. By demonstrating his faith through his works, through his obedience, he's refuted his own argument. The fact that faith and works can be distinguished does not mean they can be independent from one another and still be the same thing with the same function and power. Let me say that again. The fact that faith and works can be distinguished up from one another does not mean that they can be independent from one another and still be the same thing with the same function and the same power. This is why Paul says that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul is saying that we are justified by faith that does not come from us. Faith that comes from us is not biblical faith. It's not saving faith. If you separate that out and it's something else, the faith that comes, something that comes from us... Now we're not talking about justifying faith anymore. You're just talking about you doing something to try and justify yourself. The moment you try to separate faith from works or obedience from, work, from faith, you lose it all. You don't just lose obedience. You lose faith and works. The moment you try to separate those out, You lose it all. You say, well, I just have this one, or I just have that one. You've not held on to that one. You've lost it all. You've lost the whole thing. For the benefit of the universal church, Paul was addressing first century Jews who were trusting in their relationship to Abraham, their ancestral relationship to Abraham. Their outward conformity to certain laws of God, which they had hand-picked, cherry-picked for their own convenience, as well as personal piety regarding their many, many, many traditions which they diligently observed. So Paul addresses justification by faith this way in order to tell these Jews that the that That these were not, those things that they were doing were not and never were enough to make a son of Adam acceptable to God the Father. That's what you're doing. Paul says, what you're doing is not enough to make a son of Adam acceptable to God the Father. Paul is telling these Jews struggling with justifying themselves. He says, you must be graciously given a gift through Jesus Christ who had been rejected and murdered by those who wished to justify themselves. You want to justify yourself. That's what those guys who murdered Jesus were doing. But the problem is, In order to have justification, you've got to have it from that guy who just hung on that cross. So you can't reject him and be justified and acceptable to God. That's what Paul is saying. You have to have something outside of you from Christ that comes to you. Faith apart from works or obedience is dead. It is empty. It is worthless because faith apart from Christ, who is life, is dead. Christ is the life. There is no life apart from Christ. And so if your faith comes from your own works or from anything else, it is dead and it will not save you. Faith comes from Christ who is life. And so our working apart from faith, our good works apart from faith, what are those now? Well, now those will be our own condemnation. And actually, Paul says in Romans fourteen twenty three, whatever is not from faith is sin. So now all of our working apart from faith, not only is it not profitable, neutral, this idea of neutral, it is actually sin. It's sin. Works apart from faith are sin works apart from faith, are in no way meritorious. They, it's the opposite, but not gaining merit for us. They actually heap on condemnation. It's sin. And you can't fix sin with more sin. We see in Matthew 15, when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, he points out how they, they pick and choose which of God's commands to obey. And how they, um, those religious leaders subordinate the law of God to their own traditions. And they can attempt, what they were doing is they were attempting to redefine obedience. Let me, re- let me import my own definition of obedience into this discussion. Of good into this discussion. You can't do that. Jesus says in Matthew fifteen seven through 9, he says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Works apart from faith will not save. They are sinful, which means they will be your condemnation. Verse 19. James goes on to address a crucial aspect of faith. Faith is a noun. The verb form of faith is what we often see translated as believe. Believe. And in verse 19, James is talking about this verb form of faith. He says, he uses that word. He says, you believe there is one God, you do well. James says, great, you believe in the creator God who revealed himself to us such that we could know him. You believe he exists. You know what he says? So do the demons. And they tremble. You don't even tremble. They tremble. (laughs) He didn't say that part, but he says, and tremble. In other words, acknowledging God is doing well but it's not sufficient to save. Acknowledging God is good, but it's not sufficient to save. Acknowledging God, even fearing him, is good. But does that belief, that belief does not mean you have a living, saving faith. In in fact, the demons believe and they fear God that way. The I'll even go one step further and remind you that the demons are subservient to Christ. They obey Christ. Can we go to the pigs? Go to the pigs. Verse 20. Do you understand, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? James says, show me living, saving faith of Christ by your humble and glad obedience to him. That's how you will show faith. By your humble and glad obedience to Christ. There is a word which perfectly characterizes this faithful obedience. Do you know what that word is? It is love. Love. Do you love God? Don't say you love God when you hate your brother, right? Don't say you love God when you disobey him, when you run away from him. Love. The demons believe. The demons are subservient. The demons must obey. They know God exists. They know they must obey him. They obey him. That's not what James is describing for the church, is it? Be like the demons. (laughs) No. James is describing faith and obedience that is characterized by love by an embrace of God's ways, his commands, which are not burdensome. He is describing a living faith granted by a redeemer, a faith which produces glad obedience and a love of the master who saves. We say at Koinonia at school, we teach, keep the standard, love the standard. Keep the standard, love the standard. You can't just keep the standard and hate the standard. You have to love the standard. And if you say you love the standard, but you don't keep the standard, liar. The truth is not in you. Right? Verse 21, like the author of Hebrews, James then paints two small portraits for us of visible faith. Of two saints of old. First, Abraham, childless husband, pregnant with promise, finally granted after years of believing the promise, waiting for it expectantly. The son is given, Isaac is born. He is finally a father holding that promise in his arms. Can you just imagine the joy, the relief, all of those emotions that flooded through Abraham and Sarah the moment they got to hold that baby boy, Isaac. A father of many people, A promise that he sees every time he looks into the face of his precious son. But the Lord is not done strengthening faithful Abraham. The Lord isn't done building up and fortifying Abraham's faith in Christ, is he? What a precious moment that Abraham and Sarah, in their Old age, holding this baby, this child of promise, looking into the eyes of Isaac, seeing a promise fulfilled, seeing it come, seeing the promise yet to come, the father of many nations, seeing the day of Christ in their boy's face. Years go by, and then God says, now take that boy, to the mountain where I will show you and offer him up as a burnt offering as an ascension offering Now both James and Paul rightly point us to faithful Abraham to give us a full view of faith of faithfulness of obedience of justification and James says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? James in this verse points us to Abraham's faith in Genesis 22. Paul in Romans 4 verse 2 point, and in Galatians 3 points us to Abraham's faith in Genesis 15. And Paul makes the argument that Abraham's justification is from a faith whose source is not Abraham. It is alien to Abraham. And this, of course, is perfectly consistent with what James describes as the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verse 1. So first, God comes to Abraham, not because Abraham deserved it. Second, when God comes to Abraham with the command, Abraham does not get to say to God, Depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. I will follow you and serve you and obey you in my heart here at home in my tent. Abraham, faithful Abraham, doesn't get to say that. Abraham doesn't get to say, yes, Lord, I will go make the journey to the mountain and sacrifice my only begotten son truly in my heart. Let your kids try that with you, right? Clean your room. Yes, I will clean it in my heart. (laughs) You better clean it in your heart. You better get get busy, right? (laughs) No, 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 no. Faithful Abraham doesn't get to be faithful Abraham and say, I will obey you, God, in a symbolic way of my own imagination. Since I know what you really want is just my heart commitment to you. If Abraham does that, you realize he is rejecting God. He is denying God to be God himself. Abraham cannot actually have a justifying faith, a saving faith, an unwavering trust in his God if he refused to obey and only paid lip service to the one in whom his faith is found. Verse 22, James says that faith was working together with his works. By works, faith was made perfect, or we could say complete. Again, let me say what I said a moment ago. The fact that faith and works can be distinguished does not mean that they can be independent from one another and still be the same thing with the same function and power. A bicycle isn't a bicycle if it has three wheels. That's right. A bicycle is a bicycle because it has two wheels. A triangle is not a triangle if it has four sides. A triangle is a triangle because it has three sides. Take away a side, add a side. It's not what it is anymore. So in time, if faith is absent from obedience, from works, it's incomplete or dead. And it will not produce the same function as living faith, which is made complete by works. Or we could say living faith produces obedience. Like Paul says, he talks about at the end of Romans, the obedience of faith. Verses 23 and 24. Now James points us to the declaration in Genesis 15, like Paul does. Now, James goes back to Genesis 15. And he says, Abraham believed and was counted righteous. James says that Genesis 22, when, he take, when, when Abraham takes Isaac up to that mountain, that that is the fulfillment of that declared promise. That declared justification. When was Abraham really justified though? In Genesis 15, Or Genesis 22. And while we're asking the question, why don't we go ahead and ponder when the disciples of Christ were really justified, don't we? How about we do that? Were were they justified when they were called to follow him on the shores of the lake? Were they justified when Jesus washed their feet? When he gave them the bread and the cup? When he said that that was his body and his blood? Were they justified when he gave up the ghost and cried, it is finished on the cross? Were they justified when he rose from the dead that glorious morning? Were they justified when Jesus breathed on them and told them to receive the Holy Spirit after his resurrection, before his ascension? Or were they justified when he poured out the Holy Spirit on them on the day of Pentecost? The question of what moment did justification really happen for Abraham or for the disciples or for you or for me is the wrong question to be wrestling with. That is not the question we are called to wrestle with. The question we should be wrestling with is the same question the disciples had to wrestle with. On day one, Jesus, disciples, Jesus says, follow me. And they have a choice to make. They are faced with the conflict, the question, will we follow him? That's the question on day one. That's the question on day two and three and four it was the same question they had to wrestle with up to the very moment they took their very last breath, faced by the executioner with the question, will you deny him? They're actually wrestling with the question, not from an executioner, but from Christ saying, will you follow me? That's the question they had to wrestle with. And that's the question Abraham had to wrestle, wrestle with in Genesis 15. Will you follow me? When I say go from your father's house. Same question he had to wrestle with in Genesis 22. Will you follow me to the mountain where I will show you? Here's the answer. Abraham was justified in Genesis 15. Abraham was justified in Genesis 22 because his faith is alive. His faith is alive. Just like your faith is alive. Just like the disciples' faith is alive. It is active and it is working effectively. And guess what? Christian, it never stops working effectively to save you. Salvation obedience to the very end, the same thing James and Paul want for us who believe. That is, what, that is what is being produced in Abraham by his living and active faith. Verse 24, For Protestant Christians and heirs of the Reformation, we rightly place a very high value on the doctrine that has often been called justification by faith alone. And that is a good and right biblical doctrine that teaches us that there is nothing we can we are or can do to merit God's favor, the gracious gift of salvation. Rather, we are justified by faith, which graciously comes to us from God through Jesus Christ alone. That's a good and true Reformation doctrine. And there is no work in and of ourselves we can do to merit God's favor to us. To save us. And I join with Paul and James and Luther and Calvin to say heartily, amen. However, there's something ironic that you need to be aware of as it relates to the name that we have given this true doctrine. It is an irony that the only time the phrase faith alone or faith only occurs in the scripture is right here in James in the verse that says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. It's a little ironic. It's a little funny. It's not a contradiction to the the doctrine. But that's something you need to be made aware of when you talk to your friends who are Roman Catholic and they say, did you know? And you can say, yes, I did. In verse 25, James James uses another example to help us understand this important teaching on justifying faith. And that is Rahab the prostitute. James says she was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. With this example, James does here what the book of Hebrews chapter 11 does for us over and over. Is that he, he paints this portrait of living, justifying faith. Faith produces obedience in us. Living faith makes us faithful. Think fruit of the Spirit. In our new life, who is Christ who is called the author and the finisher of our faith. Verse 26. Just as a body can be distinguished from the spirit, just as a body can be distinguished from the spirit, we can distinguish between faith and works. But just like a body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So... The fact that faith and works can be distinguished doesn't mean they can be independent from one another and still be the same thing with the same function and power. It's not complicated. Faith without works is a corpse. It is dead. It cannot save. Faith is so much more than words or knowledge or facts. Faith is obedience to Christ which is characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so then, all of this section is related to James's earlier exhortation in chapter 1, where he says, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. To be doers of the word and not hearers only. It also relates to the exhortation at the beginning of chapter 2, where he says to be careful how we hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. If your life fails to demonstrate an orientation, a posture of obedience to Christ, whatever you have, it is not living faith. You've deceived yourself, and I exhort you, brother or sister, to confess and repent of your sin. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, your life will change. Being a Christian with living faith does not mean perfectionism. As long as we are on this side of eternity in these corrupted bodies, we will struggle against temptation and sin. But it will be just that. It will be a struggle, a fight, a fight against sin and an orientation toward obedience, toward Christ, a posture of obedience toward Christ. We will fall, we will fail. We will stumble, get tangled in sin. But our life will be one where we are doing just that, struggling against it. And for those who follow Christ, our life in the flesh will not be perfect. It will be oriented toward repentance and confession that gives way to the amazing Grace of Jesus Christ. Our faithful big brother shows us the righteous path. And he calls us to follow. And we all get tripped up. We all fall down hard on that path. And we at times stray from righteous path. And we find ourselves lost in the dark tangled in the briars caught in the miry clay but Jesus is a good shepherd who will not leave you alone he will find you and he will patiently call you again and again And again, follow me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the table. This table is the Lord's table. And at it, we reap the benefit of the obedience of Christ. At this table, we reap the benefit of the obedience of Christ. Our obedience now, just like Christ, is not always an active obedience. It's not always something that you can just check off the list. I did this, I did this, I didn't do this, I did this, I did this. Our obedience to Christ includes the passive obedience of enduring long. Resting in Him. The belief that the next thing you need will come when you need it. Our Father gives us daily what we need and today, He gives you bread and wine. He gives you Himself again. He gives us this table and He renews covenant with us. A grace upon grace. So church, come And welcome to Jesus Christ. Please stand and receive your charge. Jesus is asked in John chapter 6. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answers and he says this. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he sent. That's faith. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he sent. Faith is a verb. Faith works. Faith is obedient. Faith is a gift. And therefore, obedience is also a gracious gift. Our good shepherd gives Faith, and he gives grace to obey. He gives faith, and he gives grace to obey. Romans 10, so that's what it's about. Turn and trust on Christ. When you are obedient, do you get to pat yourself on the back and tell God how awesome and deserving of his affection and favor you are when you're obedient? Do you get to do that? When you get get to say, oh God, look how awesome I am. Or when you are obedient, you say, glory be to God. Glory be to God. Of course we say, glory be to God. Why? Because it is all of grace. God is at work in you. And so today, if you are struggling with obedience, like you all are, like we all are, your prayer should be, Father, give me grace to obey and then get up and obey in the name of the father, son and holy spirit. amen. amen. let's sing our thanks to god. praise, praise god, god from whom all blessings flow praise him, all creatures, hear me, low. praise Your benediction comes from Psalm 90, verses 16 and 17. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Amen.